Dear God, my prayer today is that um, that we all in this room can be a blessing to each other. I very much appreciate you being patient with me in my struggles. I very much appreciate you not leaving me, but you um, pulling me on to to become stronger, but also to find strength in in depending on you, God. And I, I pray just now that everyone here can see a testimony of of depending on you and what I have to share. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Complacency will be the undoing of the saints is a phrase a very dear friend of mine heard in a dream. And as he's dreaming this dream, it was unlike any other dream. He's, he's actually flying in the, in the sky and it's at sunset. The, the sun is quickly setting and he sees thunderhead clouds, those big clouds that that come right as a storm is actually coming and the lightning starting to strike and he's he's flying through the sky and, and something like an airplane though he didn't really notice the airplane and as he's flying lightning starts to flash and he's approaching these thunderheads and he starts to fly in amongst them kind of like a maze going through these thunderheads and it gets dark fast and as the lightning starts striking more and more he sees that this lightning is very different than lightning that you would typically see because this lightning is actually flashing scenes of Earth's history onto the clouds. He sees it flash scene from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell. He sees it flash scenes from Noah's flood. He sees it flash scenes from Abraham's life, scenes from Daniel's life. Goes through the entire Bible but does not stop there. His heartbeat starts really beating as if he's in danger of, of being hurt. And, and, and these scenes go on from, from outside of the Bible. He starts to see wars. He goes on to see um, scenes from World War I, the assassinations that began that. I specifically remember him stating that. He sees scenes from World War II. Up until our present day, he keeps seeing these scenes, and his heartbeat is just beating incredibly fast as if he is in, in this, this huge danger. And he comes out of the bottom of one of these clouds, granted in a in a storm and he's flying towards earth and as he's flying towards earth he hears that phrase again complacency will be the undoing of the saints and as he's flying towards earth knowing that death is about to come upon him he sees a group of, a large group of people that he's about to hit and he comes down and all of a sudden the scene changes and now he's a soldier marching in formation with a large group of soldiers they're all dressed in their um, regalia as, as a soldier would wear for a parade, not for necessarily combat. And as they're marching, he hears the phrase again, complacency will be the undoing of the saints. And they're marching one by one. And, but his heartbeat is up higher than it was when he was in the clouds, as if they're actually in battle shooting at other people. He, feel, he has that emotional feeling, but they're just marching as if in a parade. And he continually hears this phrase repeated, complacency will be the undoing of the saints. And he can't figure it out because the tension in his dream is just, is just very, very heavy. And he's expecting something big to happen. And, and as it gets to that point... <clears throat> His view raises from above the soldiers, and then everything makes sense. He sees the group of soldiers he was with. Though it seemed large when he was with them, it's actually a smaller group, dressed in regalia, marching in one direction. Opposing them, marching beside them, is a much larger group, clearly the enemy, marching the opposite direction. And the group of soldiers he was with 
People on the edge close to the enemy would change direction as they marched. Join the enemy and their uniforms would change to join that of the enemy. And he hears the phrase, complacency will be the undoing of the saints. First time I heard, my friend, friend actually came to my room, room 234 in Talge Hall, and told me he just had this dream. He says, I feel like I have to tell you this. And when he told me this dream, it um, didn't just bring chills. It almost brought tears, but it brought me to my knees because I knew that that phrase was the story of my life. I had grown up a good Adventist. I had grown up with the pats on the back for my principal. And in grade school and in academy, we need 10 more just like you. But I knew in my heart of hearts that I didn't have what I wanted to have in my walk with God. And it was scaring me. Because I knew the right things, but why couldn't I have the right experience? So complacency will be the undoing of the saints. I looked up the word complacency, and I'll read it, um, read it for you now. The definition is self-satisfaction, especially when accom accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Self-satisfaction when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. I believe that we as Seventh-day Adventists can actually be very close to dangers, very close to dangers that we don't even realize because we can have all the right information and not being applying it to have the right experience, to have that depth of experience that, um, that we say we have. We have to ask ourselves the question, do we have it? Because if we don't, complacency truly will be the undoing of the saints. I'm going to give you something of, of snapshots of my own experience, of, of my life. Similar to my friend flying through the clouds in his dreams, seeing snapshots of, the, of basically the great controversy throughout Earth's history. And as he saw that, I'm going to give you snapshots of my life to show you about the complacency that I've experienced and the struggle that I've had but, and, and how I was being pulled into that and how God pulled me back another direction. One snapshot to, to kind of help you understand maybe a little bit more of the danger of complacency. I was in academy. I was over at our chaplain's house, and um, somehow I was in his, he had an office. And, and I went into to his office, and we were talking or something. I don't remember. But I was looking through his books, kind of just having a look. And I saw one that was really weird. The title of it was Mein Kampf. I'm like, that's just strange. It's another language. I always liked other cultures. I pull it, off, pull it off the shelf. I did not know that I was pulling off the shelf um, Hitler's repertoire of his perspective on things that happened in World War I and, and the, what was going on in Germany. I opened this up. Mein Kampf, by the way, means, does anyone know? My, my struggle in German. So I, so I open up this book and I start to read. I do not remember where I was at in the book. I just remember being shocked by how logical the man was. Because he was saying something racist, and I do not remember who it was. He did not like, I mean, he didn't like anybody pretty much, except, except the Aryan race. Most of us in here would, I don't think any of us in here would really be, be too good on, on his, um, his ultimate terms, you might say. But um, as I'm reading it, I was shocked by the man's logic. He could ask a question and logically connect things where we could all say, you know what, he makes sense. It makes sense to not like, and I don't even remember which group of people it was. I think it was either, um, it was either black people or Jewish, or not Jewish people, it was gypsies. Gypsies or black people that he was particularly criticizing about. I was shocked at the man's logic, and it really scared me because I'm a logical person. Now, I had no desire to kill anyone. I wasn't thinking of myself as the next Hitler, 
But the very idea that my line of thinking could be similar to Hitler's was a scary, was a scary thing. So now I'm going to take you back to the beginning of my life. Another snapshot. I was eight years old, lived in Dalton, Georgia, just south of here, down 75. My dad at church one Sabbath said, you can invite a friend home. Uh, my mother and sister were gone, and so he said, you can invite a friend home, and, and they can you know, spend the day with. I think he's kind of thinking, then I'll be entertained. I'll have my friend to play with, you know, and, and then that'll you know, relieve him of whatever, you know, he can, he can do whatever he was going to do Sabbath afternoon. I don't know what his plans were. But so I go and get my friend and I bring her to my dad. I say, this is who I want to bring home today. He's like, you can't bring her. She says, why not? Yes, he can. This is a, this is a 65-year-old woman named Addie. And she was my best friend. I mean, he said I could bring a friend home. This was a really good friend of mine. So it just made sense to me. And he's like, she's like, well, why not? He invited me and you said he could invite a friend. I'm his friend. And so, so Addie had my back and she ends up Call me. I mean, actually, Addie was a co-worker of my father's. Um, they were both anesthetists at the hospital um, down in Dalton. So, so Addie comes home to spend, um, to spend Sabbath afternoon with, with eight-year-old Jeff. We have lunch, and Dad's like, are you serious? I can't believe this is happening. You know, this is just crazy. He's kind of teasing, teasing Addie a little bit when I'm not looking. And um, as we're eating, we lived across from a cornfield. And cornfields in the fall get plowed up. So this cornfield was completely plowed up, and we were driving in. Addie, Addie was a nature lover. That's one of the things she used to really become close to me. She'd take me to see all kinds of things in nature. And this particular day, as we drove up, she said, you know what the, that big flock of birds out there is? That's sandhill cranes. And sandhill cranes are a really rare bird. They actually, supposedly, they follow 75 now as part of their migratory route. They, they used to follow rivers and things like that, but one of the things they've adopted now is highways and interstate systems. So we weren't too far from 75 where we lived in this big flock of rare birds. They're kind of like storks. They're about that tall, I'd say. Um, the big flock of them out there. She gets this bright idea. She says, let's go out there after lunch and let's, you know, let's go see how close we can get to them. And it had been raining and this is a plowed cornfield. So you can just imagine the situation, right? After lunch, Addie and I take off. We're on one of our adventures. This is exactly what I knew it would happen and this is why I invited Addie to be home with me that day. <laughs> and so we take off into this cornfield. We get out in the middle the sandhill cranes fly off just like a National Geographic movie from Africa or something, you know, where all the huge flock, you can hear their wings and everything. They fly up, they fly up, circle around, and they take off and get away from us. And we head back across the cornfield to head home. I hear Addie scream. I turn around, and Addie had fallen forward straight down into the mud. I mean, this is, this is thick mud, too. This is the kind of mud that makes a suctioning sound as you, as you walk in it. So I go back to help Addie up, helping her get up out of the mud, and um, we keep walking. I get farther ahead of her. I hear her scream again, and I turn around, and Addie's not there. We're in the middle of a cornfield, mind you. There's nothing for her to hide behind. There's no ditches. There's no trees. There's no rocks. There's no anything. It's just mud, plowed up dirt. And, um, and I'm looking, and I'm just completely shocked. I'm like, what? Where, where did she go, you know? And then I see the mud kind of move a little bit. This time she'd fallen backwards. <laughs> so she was camouflaged by the mud that she'd followed forward with. So I go back, I help Addie up, we continue our walk across the field. Um, when she tells a story, it's much better when I tell a story, she says, um, we, we kind of had to go down the road to enter the field kind of thing. As we're walking down the road, she had walked out of one of her shoes, had a stocking that it was slowly coming off, and so she's kind of slinging it full of mud <laughs> down the road. Her wig was half sideways and and we're heading back home and 
with Dirty Addie. She says I was she says I was embarrassed of her and went you know far far away to to avoid her. And there's a, but there's a reason I'm telling you this story. Addie was a very vi is a very vibrant person. Um, she had a cleft palate, has a cleft palate, I should say. That means her, her lip basically did not have a lip. From the, from the bottom of her um, nose, there's nothing. There is because she's one of the first people they ever did surgery on. And she's one of the experimental surgeries. Her family didn't have money. So back in the 40s or 50s, I think it was 40s when they first were trying out plastic surgery on, on um, these babies. Since they didn't have money, the agreement was that the surgeon got to take her different places and put her on display before all of these um, colleagues. Left big scars in her life, and she vowed to never, um, at the age of 12, she vowed to not have children. So despite this woman's amazing personality, she got many offers to marriage. I've counted them before, and it ex exceeded 12. And, sh and the last offer she got was only a couple of years ago. She continually would be off. People were always trying to marry her, but she would always turn them down. Um, for the risk of having children, and then later on in life, she just, oh, it's too late, you know. But, but she's someone I ask the serious questions to. I, I talk to her about death. I talk to her about marriage. Why did you not get married? I'd ask her these questions. And as a young child, this really set home deeply with me. Why did God allow such a good person to suffer outside of their control? It's not like Addie made bad decisions that brought this about. Why did my best friend have a cleft palate? Why? And that question of why became deep-seated in my heart. I was the why kid. Mom and dad would say, apologize. I'd say, why? Especially if I didn't, if I didn't see why I should. I was constantly asking why. And the why can be a very valuable question. Why can ultimately be very destructive. Because when we ask any question, you have to really ask yourself the question, are we looking for answers or are we not? And I was asking why as a way of expressing my frustration towards who? Towards God. Not as a way of actually seeking answers. I would have liked answers, but I was pretty ticked. I was pretty frustrated. And this, this, just as a little kid, this, though I wanted God, though I, I was the good kid, I started wondering, this doesn't make sense. The problem of pain. You've all probably heard some of those conversations. Fast forward, later on in, um, in grade school, there was a girl in our class, and this is a much shorter story, but um, another snapshot nonetheless of the same, of the same pattern. Uh, there was a girl in our class, we'll call her Sue, um, very pretty girl, very um, socially vibrant, you know, she was just friends with lots of people, very nice, but all of us knew, all of us knew that her father at least emotionally abused her, if not physically as well. And I started to feel guilty because I came from a family, middle, middle income, you know, our middle class family, good income, her family suffered financially. My parents took care of me, my parents loved me, and I'm sitting there knowing that my friend, this really nice friend, is abused, possibly physically. I never knew for sure. Why? Why did I have it good, but my friend had it bad? And these questions started to bring about complacency in my life. I was getting close to something very dangerous without knowing it, even at a young age, because I was asking questions, but not finding what? Answers. Are there answers available to these things? Absolutely there are answers available for these things in the Word of God. But I wasn't finding answers. I was turning my dialogue with God into questions that were actually accusations. 
and I did not have a deep, dark life. I was once again the good kid that read scripture in church and got the pats on the back. But the core of who I was was saying, hmm. And my, and my actual, my knowledge of God was increasing, but my relationship with God was pulling farther and far, becoming more and more strained. Another snapshot of my life, moved to, um, to high school. I was a um, good kid, got the pats on the back. I was an RA, resident assistant, the one that was respected, I became the head RA. And um, at one point, my father, see, he believed that he knew, he went into anesthesia for the money. That's why he went. He believed he was called to ministry, which is a whole other story. But he went into um, anesthesia because his father was a pastor and he knew what they made. So he wanted to avoid that. <laughs> he wanted to make money. And, um, and this troubled my father a great deal. And then my junior year in academy, my, the dean was um, leaving. And so my father said, you know what, maybe this is the time for me to transition and go into the calling that I was always called to, go into ministry and be a, um, excuse me, be a guy's dean. So my dad applies for this, for this position. He applies to be the dean, um, dean at the academy where I attended, actually Bass Memorial Academy. And um, in the process of, process of his application, he was told um, he was going to come for an interview, and he was told when the, the interview was either going to be a Friday afternoon or Saturday night, and didn't know which because it involved people's travel plans and that type of thing. So dad gets there on um, Friday morning with my mom, with my little sister, um, I'm there, you know, so we meet up in the afternoon, not too many classes later in the afternoon. And um, we're talking and spending time together, and Dad's like, you know what, I don't, there's no way they're going to have the interview this afternoon. It's getting, it's only, I think it's about two hours from sundown, maybe three hours. It's close enough to sundown. He's like, there's no chance they're going to do an interview. Let's just go into town and go to eat. And so as we're going into town, literally as we get to the exit, we were going to go one way, which would take you, you know, as you get off the interstate, you take one route. And at the last minute, we decided to go to a different restaurant. We go to a different restaurant. It's a Mexican restaurant. We um, walk in. They go to seat us, and they seat us right beside another guy who is there to interview and all the administrators and conference officials. Now, granted, in my young mind, I realized they had left us back there at the school, not told us a thing about what was going on, and um, taking the other guy out to, to quote-unquote wine and dine. My dad and I looked at me. You know how women can look at each other and communicate really fast? My dad and I could do that too. <laughs> we looked at each other and we were like, let's not make too much of this because this, you know, this will really hurt my mom. My mom will get really, you know, this would be, but it was painful for me. But we're like, okay, you know, kind of in the situation, we got to handle this right. So we kind of play it off. We're sitting there crazy, obviously really awkward for all the people over there because they knew what had or a couple of them knew what had happened, right? It wasn't everybody. It was only a couple of them. That, oh, you know, and there's all, always their excuses. But anyhow, so, so I get in this. So we're in this bad situation. We go back to the school. Um, when, my, when my mother and sister aren't around, I'm telling my dad, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm upset. Because as an RA, these leaders were the people I pointed my friends to. And I see them willing to treat other people in this way. Does that make sense? Do you see what? And I'm saying, no, this isn't right. My friends that don't have fathers, I point them to these guys to be like fathers in their life. And now they're willing to treat people like this? This doesn't make sense. It's one thing to, to turn my dad down. That's, that's cool. That's fine. But to treat my, to treat my friends, like, who am I going to point my friends to? Is this Seventh-day Adventist thing, does it really work if the very leaders can act like this? 
it got worse over the weekend. My mother came out of the interview in tears because of some of the questions that were asked, and they would never tell me what was asked. I don't know what it was, but it got really bad, bad to the point that um, one of the people that had been in that interview um, came and preached at, um, at the academy later on about a month later, and I couldn't listen to a thing. I was, I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking hypocrite the whole time. And I get on the phone afterwards and talking to my dad saying this, this, and this, and my ever-wise father, he said, well, um, I don't want to hear from you again until you've talked to him. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, why did he even, I knew what he'd say, you know, why did I talk to him? And, um, and so I had to sit down with, um, with this person, who happened to be the conference president, and say, I have a real problem with you, actually. <laughs> and um, I don't really know how to say this, but some of the things that happened. Now, long story short, I want to tell you, the end of this story is actually, um, there's always more to it, often than what you know or see. I work for that very conference president now. We, I consider him a friend and vice versa. So, so the bigger picture was a little bit different than, um, than what I was seeing. And there were, there were quite a few other people involved. So I was projecting some things onto him that were qu quite unfair. But in my mind, and there was some, not with him, but with some other people, there were some unfair things that had happened. And I'm saying, why? Does this Seventh-day Adventist message work? If leaders can be this way, if leaders can be this way, I never questioned, like they'll be talking about next door. I never questioned, does God exist? But I questioned, does it work? Because I was experiencing my own life at this time, I was starting to struggle with sin that I couldn't overcome. And then when I see leaders acting this way, well, they're the ones that are supposed to have it. And if they treat people this way, then what's the hope? But remember that phrase, complacency will be the undoing of the saints. And I was getting very close to some very dangerous things. Because though I was the good kid, I was the kid with a, with, a, um, with a relationship with God that was going downhill. I knew all the information, but I was asking why. I was, I was asking questions. I was making attacks without being willing to really get into the answers. Yeah, I could give answers for the Sabbath, but even the Sabbath, do I, did I understand what that had to do with the relationship with God? Because the Sabbath has everything to do with the relationship with God. Everything actually in the Seventh-day Adventist message points to greater intimacy with God. I had not discovered that, and I was living a life of asking why. And logically, logically, I was turning my back on a lot of things that actually would have taken me to, um, to a correct understanding, to intimacy. I was starting to turn my back on the church, not purposefully, but experientially. That doesn't work. Another snapshot. Come here. Southern Adventist University. I'm a student here. I changed my major five times. They say that's the average. I don't know, but I thought it was a lot. It made me have to stay here an extra semester, which is expensive. Don't do that. So, um, so while I'm here, I was once again the good kid, but I have that very clear feeling of I have hollowness in my experience with God, and I'm struggling with this. I want a real walk with God. I, I, want, I want intimacy. I want to know that if I need to know something from God, He can tell me. I want to know that the things that I struggle with, the sins that I struggle with, it's possible for me to overcome, but I wasn't overcoming. I want to know that my church, that my church... The message of my church is actually successful, and I'm struggling deeply with these things. I was a psych major when I first came here, and um, I met, um, well, 
within the first day I changed my major <laughs> to family studies, which is probably pretty much a psych major. And then I changed to religious studies. Then I changed to theology. Then I changed to religious education. About the time I was changing to religious education is when my friend came to my room, 234 in Tauge. Second, second story almost right above what was the lobby then. I think it's still the lobby now. They've added on since I've been here. And um, he comes into my room and he tells me about this dream. And that dream put into one phrase the story of my life. Complacency will be the undoing of the saints. I was going with the flow of my logic. I was making sense in my head while all the while becoming farther and farther removed from a walk with God. And the very removal of a walk with God, the very lack of power in my life, the very lack of God's power to change me was making me go even further. Does that make sense? And a friend comes in and says, Jeff, I've just had this dream, tells it all to me, says complacency will be the undoing of the saints, and I knew my danger. At that point, I understood this has been my story. I've, I've been complacent. I've gone with the flow of my logic. I've gone with the flow of the things that Satan keeps throwing at me. I have not stood up against those things. And I began to pray very deliberately, very deliberately that God would fight complacency in my life. At that time, I found a verse in the Bible that has totally changed my life. And this verse, I, I know like pastors aren't supposed to have favorite verses, but um, I do. <laughs> this is my favorite verse, and it's, and it's literally changed my walk with God. It's probably saved me, and, um, and I still don't understand it. It's John 14, 12. It says that um, Jesus says, right, I mean, it's a beautiful portion of the Bible, 14 through 17 in John. Jesus says, um, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will do the works that I do. And listen to this next part. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. That made me, I mean, think about that. The God, our Savior, God, wants to do greater things through you and I than he did through himself. What does that mean? Now what you'll hear, you'll hear a lot of people say, well that just means, you know, the collective body of people, um, then they, you know, if there's a whole bunch of us, then by our numbers we can do greater things. Or, or you'll hear people say, well we live in a time of modern media, and so we can do greater, you know, we can spread it out there more. I don't believe that, because that's not, I mean, he didn't say anything. Like, he says, truly, truly, which is, that's like saying, you got to listen to this one, guys. Like, this, is, this is a really important thing that Jesus is about to say. He says, he who believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. We as Seventh-day Adventists believe that God is where? Not just in heaven. He's in the sanctuary with who? The Father. He's doing this message of atonement. He's making us one with Him. Bringing us to a union with God unlike anything the earth, the earth's history has shown outside of really the testimony of the Bibles. You find people like Job, people like Daniel who had this experience. But Jesus, He says that, that, that we, if we believe on Him, will do the things that He did, and greater works than these will we do because He is going to the Father. Now, what did He say He would do once He went to the Father? He would send who? 
the Holy Spirit. And that comes right after, right in John 14 and, and following John 14, you hear this concept of, of, of the Holy Spirit coming to guide us into all truth, implying that, that all truth hadn't been quite understood yet or experienced yet. And guys, for me, in my walk with God, I was looking at a church that I was like, I believe everything this church teaches, but I don't know if it's actually real. And I'm on my knees and I say, God, I want this. Which is why I believe, is what one thing God used to call me in to work for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Because I can point my finger pretty well. I'm a pretty good critic. I can, I can break things apart and blah, 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 I can kind of break it down, right? But you've heard that saying that when you point your finger at someone, you have three pointing back at yourself. This passage does that. Because now, any problem I see in the world, if Christ can do greater things through me than he did through, them, through himself, then I have the opportunity. If I can see a problem and God's willing to do greater things through me than he did through himself, then I can be part of the what? Part of the solution. So now when I saw these problems, when I saw what was going on, and when I, the things that I had experienced, I can be part of the solution. The personal struggles that I was having in life, this message, this, this one verse was telling me that God, it, not only can He get rid of those things in my life, not only can I triumph by God's grace over the struggles that I was having, God wanted to do greater things through me than He did through Himself. I believe it's better that we leave that as a mystery. Obviously, we're not the Savior of the world. So obviously, we don't do greater things than, than or God doesn't do greater things through us in that regards. But there's some part of this passage that we will experience, I believe, in the last days. We're going to get more into that in the next seminar. There's some part of this experience that is exactly what Christ was saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will do the works that I do. And what? Greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. Because Christ is in the sanctuary, we should do greater works than him. On A result. It's an if-then. If Christ is with the Father in the sanctuary, we will, as a result, do what? Greater works. We can sit here and talk about that all day long and try to come up, try to define it. But there's a real danger in that. It is important to have boundaries. It's absolutely important to have boundaries. But Christ is offering us an experience that is far beyond anything any other God offers. You can study any other world religion. There's no God saying, I want to do greater things through my creations than I did through myself. There's no God like that. It doesn't exist. And there's no passage in the Bible that, that, that brought me to my knees more, saying, God, I want this experience. And there's no passage in the Bible that brought me up off my knees more, may, making me want to go do something because I want to try this out. I want to experience what does it mean to do greater works? What, what, is, what is Jesus saying? What is this concept? Complacency will be the undoing of the saints, but complacency does not have to be our experience. It does not have to be our experience. The following years for me were still a struggle because I was looking for this experience. It's pretty high expectations, wouldn't you say? Pretty high expectations that God would do greater things through me 
that, that, that's, that's, I mean, you can't really get much higher than that. And it was a struggle, like, how do I have this? And this is one tip I will give you for your devotional life. The most steady and best time in my life devotionally is when I read through the Conflict of the Ages series along with the Bible. It took me three years to do it. I hear people do it in a year. I tried. For me, it didn't work. I was reading lots of words, but I was getting very little, like, transformation. And I wasn't wanting information. I was wanting transformation. I wanted the information to do something in my life. I would highly, highly recommend read through um, Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, um, Desire of Ages, Acts of the Apostle, Desire of Ages, and I throw in a couple more books, Steps to Christ, Christ Object Lessons, and Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. In essence, that's in a commentary of the entire Bible, and you can get little cards, you can go to the ABC, and you can find cards that show you how to match the Bible up with different portions of that. You can get a one-year plan, a two-year plan, a three, you can get all these different, think up the five-year five -year plans. Do it, guys. Because it, it started in, in, in wake of me studying this passage and seeing that God wanted to do greater things through me than He did to Himself. Whatever that means, it's biblical. That concept is biblical. Now we need to keep it biblical. But God wants to do greater things through me than He did through Himself. I went to the spirit of prophecy and I started to read. And over three years, my relationship with God was not a roller coaster. It added up its ups and downs. But it was no roller coaster where it was scary downs and scary ups. It was a steady walk with Him. And I began to experience a transformation in my life where I was saying, you know what? I've got to have faith. I've got to be steady. And, t and slowly, ever so slowly, God began to reveal to me what it was He was expecting. John 14, chapter, that chapter in John, um, begins a, a, a dialogue, more like a monologue, but, but partially a dialogue between Christ and His disciples. And in this, in this incredible portion of the scriptures, you see some absolutely amazing things happen. Um, Jesus talks about, that's, that's where you get the story of the vine and the branches, where you get the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's where you get the, if you love me, what? Keep my, I mean, you get all this stuff packed in because Jesus is about to die. If you know, and he knows he's about to die. And if you know you're about to die and you have friends around you, what you say is going to be important, Right? It's going to be really important. And that's the stuff Jesus is saying right then. And, and my favorite verse comes at the beginning of that. But my favorite, favorite passage, if I'm allowed to have a favorite passage as well, comes at the end of that. It's the longest prayer of Christ in the Bible. John 17. It's been said it's the simplest in words, but the most profound in ideas. At the beginning of it, Christ prays for himself. He prays that God will glorify him. His second part of his prayer is he prays for his disciples. And he prays that, that they'll be kept from the evil one. That they, and that ultimately, um, they'll have this, this experience because you've got to understand, he knows his disciples are going to, going to flee, but he's praying for their protection from Satan and that they will continue on in the work that he started in their lives. And then a very beautiful part comes into play. It's, um, it starts at verse 20, John 17, verse 20. Jesus says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Through their word being the testimony of the disciples. Powerful. He goes on to say that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us. He starts to pray about us being made one with him. And the end of the prayer, in the end of the prayer, there's this absolutely mysterious phrase. 
His dying, okay, the biggest prayer in the Bible of Christ right before he dies, is this important, yes or no? Yes, this is important. And his last request is for those who will believe on him through his disciples' words. That's who? Us. And his last phrase of this longest prayer right before he dies is, I in them. He wants to be so close to us that he wants to be, that he wants it to be described as in us. What does that mean? I discovered this and I don't, I didn't know, I've been looking at this and I'm like, whoa. At the beginning, I have this passage that saved my experience with God. At the end, I find out that the most important thing to Christ was to have the very thing I was wanting with Christ, but not able to find. Christ wants it too. And that, in essence, is the Seventh-day Adventist message. We call it the investigative judgment, and that's accurate. But I like the phrase more atonement or at one The message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a message of being made at one with Christ. Everything, everything about what we believe centers on being made one with Christ. The Sabbath is not about worshiping on the right day. That's a peripheral issue. The Sabbath is ultimately about being made one with Christ. Very obviously, it's about being, being, being made one with Christ. Every, the, the state of the dead, that's not about being more, more right. That's about being made one with God. Everything we understand centers around, around being made one with God. But let me tell you guys something um, in the last five minutes here. Being made one with God is the most misused and abused concept in religion. By far, within the Adventist church today, there's great controversy going on. We call it spiritual formations. You hear a lot about that. And certainly, we don't want to throw out the concept of being spiritually formed. However, if we're going to be spiritually formed, we want to know that it's the right what? Spirit. And just as much, just as much in this concept of, of being spiritually formed, of being made one with God, we need to keep in mind that complacency, complacency will be the undoing of the saints. I want to share something with you that I found absolutely shocking. This is a book I got. One of my students is here, and I had them come over to the library and check it out for me. I forgot to bring it from home. It's called War Against the Weak. It's, a, it's the eugenics and America's campaign to create the master race. In essence, what it's about is that Hitler got his scientific justification for the Holocaust based on American science. It goes out to historically point out and prove and substantiate that people in America were sterilized and basically there was a breeding program to create the master race within America. We do not know of people being killed like happened in the Holocaust, but we do know that the science of eugenics or what was first called the race betterment movement started in America. I'm going to tell you something absolutely shocking. Actually, I'm going to show you something absolutely shocking. There's a picture right here. You know, the big middle of these huge books, I always have the section of pictures. I always go there first. Okay, there's this picture. And if you look at this picture, you can't really tell much about it. I'm going to read. It's the first race betterment conference banquet in 1914. The American Philosophical Society. Inside the picture, there's really small print. Banquet tended 
tendered. I can't read that. Uh, I can't remember what that part says. Delegates to the National Conference on Race Betterment by Battle Creek Sanitarium, January 10, 1914. I'm going to pass this picture around. You look. There's a man standing there in a white suit. Any guesses as to who he is? John Harvey Kellogg, the premier Seventh-day Adventist physician at that, well, prior to that time. Do you know what he got involved in? Pantheism. The idea of God being in us. The idea of God being in everything. If this was Christ's dying request, then it's absolutely vital that it's happened, that it happened, but it's absolutely vital that it be biblical. And in this time in Seventh-day Adventist history, we have great, great need of experience, oneness with Christ. It was Christ's dying request. It's what our message is all about. But we have great, great need of making sure we do not go the, the way of John Harvey Kellogg. Because not only did he leave and come up with this, this thing that was incorrect, he helped establish the science that Hitler used to justify the Holocaust. There's no way of standing and saying, oh, well, I'm just going to peter on over here in my Christian experience. Complacency will be the undoing of the saints. And it will not just be your undoing. It will be the undoing of those around you. Those who you could have had an influence on. It will undo them. And the ultimate result will be people will not be in heaven because you did not experience what Christ asked you to experience. But in seeking that experience, it's absolutely vital that we experience a biblical oneness with Christ. Complacency will be the undoing of the saints. The next seminar is going to focus on what does it mean to be biblically one with God. You're going to find that it's actually in prophecy. It's prophesied about. And it's absolutely profound. The devotion that we are to have to God is absolutely, to me, it's absolutely amazing. You'll find it's the theme of the Bible. And you'll find that God does give parameters. But He doesn't just give parameters. He gives, um, well, He wants to form us into creatures made literally in His image. And it's absolutely beautiful. I, I hope you'll, um, if, you, if you're not able to say, I totally understand it, these things, you want to go to all of them at the same time. But um, audio verse, I believe, will have it available as well. But do not forget, friends, do not forget, complacency will be the undoing of the saints. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear God, I pray that, um, I pray that my experience can, um, cannot glorify at all Satan's tactics, but can glorify your ability to pull us out of being pulled by Satan, God. And I pray for all the, all the good people in this world, all the good people in this room within, within sound of my voice, that they will not let good be best, beat best. That they will seek the best possible in a walk with you. Thank you for giving us this beautiful Adventist message about being made one with you, God. But we don't want to just know it. We want to experience it. And we want to experience it in a way that makes us powerful figures for you. Powerful to overcome the struggles in our own life and powerful to help others overcome those same struggles. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, 
please visit www.audioverse.org.